Greetings. Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us th to this morning, I should say, to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A hearty welcome to you. Uh, the good news is that we're leaving behind us the, the dreary wastelands that has been the topical series on critical theory, and we are entering again into the green pastures of God's Word. Uh, actually, we began last week with David's message from Psalm 23, where there were literally uh, references to the green pastures, uh, and we will continue to feed on God's Word as we begin the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I invite you to turn to it, uh, Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. As noted, there is a resource we are making available if you've not got one that has the text of the Ephesians on one side and room for notes on the other. Should you like one, raise your hand and uh, the need will be met, Lord willing. Probably, probably met, uh, more than likely. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6 is our text this morning. Let's hear God's word together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you through Christ this morning with full hearts and acknowledge that you are our maker and redeemer. Father, you spared nothing in redeeming us, giving even the life of your precious son Jesus to wash away our sins and bring us before you spotless and holy. Father, we praise you as your people this morning for your undeserved goodness in Christ. And we pray that these glorious realities would, as a result of the proclaimed word this morning, take a, a deeper hold on our hearts. Grant us, Father, to see and taste and bask in your grace and rejoice in your goodness. Work in our midst through your Holy Spirit to accomplish this. Uh, help us to understand the riches that you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this, Father, that we might be glad and that you might be honored in our midst. Amen. I'd like to begin by posing a question. Uh, when you watch a particularly good movie for the first time, what do you do at the completion of that movie? If you're like me, you turn to the person next to you, assuming that you've watched it with someone, and you express your delight in the movie. That was awesome. That was amazing. And then you begin to itemize all the good things that you enjoyed about the movie. Now, nobody tells you to do that. You just do that out of the overflow of the enjoyment of the movie. Uh, or perhaps you do that with a new piece of music. You listen to it. You're like, this is fantastic. I've got to share it with someone. I've got to go home and share it with my wife, my friend, whatever. Um, no notice what your instinct is on those occasions. To turn 
and tell others about the beauty and goodness that you've seen in this movie or this piece of music, and your instinct is to praise. Your instinct is to talk about all of the good things that you've enjoyed in this film or in this piece of music. Uh, sports enthusiasts of all kind uh, know this very well. When their team wins at the last moment through some uh, touchdown or the shot is made at the buzzer, instinctively, without being told, you get up from your seat and you applaud and you go, that was amazing. Did you, did you see that? There's astonishment and delight. Uh, to be human is to praise. When we see excellence and beauty, we're astonished by it. We praise it to others. Uh, now, if that's true of created things like movies and music and sports and nature, how much more fitting is it to praise the creator of all good, who is himself infinitely praiseworthy? And what we see in this opening section of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul, whose heart is weighed down by a sense of the majesty of God, praising God. And then he surveys the scene in front of him from verses 3 to 14, and he just itemizes all of the lavish good that God has given to his people in Christ. The letter begins with this explosion of praise and adoration. And that's what we ought to do when we think of God and when we think of what he has done for us in Jesus. But before jumping into these riches, let me, let me hit the pause button for a moment and uh, say something about the letter to the Ephesians as a whole, something about its uh, broader historical context. The first thing we should note in this letter is that it was written by the Apostle Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us. In other words, this letter is not written by just some guy in the first century. This letter is written by one authorized by the risen Christ to be his messenger. The words that we read in Ephesians are not the words of man. They are the words of the living God to us. And they are therefore perennially and continuously relevant and life-giving to us. So as we work through this letter, we are reading the words of an apostle, one whom Christ has designated to be a spokesperson. And from his mouth, from his pen, we hear the voice of God. There is an authority to this letter. We know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul ministered for a longer period of time in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey on the coast. He spent two to three years in Ephesus from 52 to 54 A.D. Uh, prior to his coming, the church there was predominantly uh, Jewish, a lot of Jewish Christians in the church at Ephesus. Uh, after his departure, there were significantly more Gentile believers. And since in the letter, the Apostle Paul speaks mainly to Gentile Christians, uh, we, we recognize that this letter was probably written after that period uh, when he's writing to these people that he, where he's established a church. We also know that he's, he tells us in chapter 3 that he's writing from prison. But even though he's in prison, he still has sufficient freedom to send letters and receive letters and have people visit him. And this fits well with what we know about his Roman imprisonment from the book of Acts at the end of Acts 28, uh, Paul is in prison, but he has some freedom. People can visit him, uh, and presumably he could dictate letters and send them where he wanted to. And if that's right, then this letter would have been written sometime around 61 AD, about seven years after his initial visit to the city of Ephesus. And a lot can happen in seven years. And that, that gap in time is probably one of the reasons that the letter to the Ephesians is one of Paul's more general letters, 
there is less specificity in terms of the circumstances of the church than we would get in, say, like 1 Corinthians, where we, we get a pretty clear sense of what there's divisions, there's all kinds of infighting. It's pretty clear why Paul is writing to them. That is less clear when it comes to the Ephesians. The letter is more uh, general in nature, and that's perhaps just the, the time lapse that has occurred. Things have changed over the course of seven years. Uh, Ephesus, and I think Randy made this observation a few weeks ago, uh, is a bit like, to use a rough contemporary analogy, Sedona. In Sedona, you have people who are interested in new agey things, uh, the vortex where you can experience, well, I don't know what. Um, in, in the ancient city of Ephesus, there was this pronounced interest in magic, uh, in amulets, and ways of protecting yourself from evil spirits. There was an interest in the demonic and hierarchies among angelic beings. Uh, there was uh, a cult site of the goddess Artemis. There was even the worship of the emperor and his family. Uh, there was, this was a place that was interested in these kinds of things. And you can read all about it in the book of Acts, Acts 8, 18 and 19. We see that even some of the believers, after they were converted, still had some interest in magic, presumably because they felt like this would keep them safe from demonic powers. And one of the consistent themes in the letter to the Ephesians is the emphasis on power, that God has worked powerfully in our lives through Jesus, that Jesus is exalted at his right hand and reigns over everything powerfully. And reading the letter in light of that context, we can see why Paul's emphasizing this point. He wants them to understand that they don't need to run to magic and to amulets or to whatever to feel protected against the powers of darkness. If they have Jesus, they are well protected. It also helps to explain perhaps the conclusion of the letter, chapter 6, which is all about spiritual warfare. So understanding something about Ephesus as this place where the people were preoccupied with magic, demons, that kind of thing, helps us to understand something of the distinctive emphases in this letter. Uh, in terms of the way it's organized, we might say roughly, but as with many of Paul's letters, the first three chapters are doctrinal in nature. Paul unpacks how God has worked powerfully in their midst through Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are comprised essentially of moral exhortations. But that divide is not absolute because th throughout four through six, Paul is drawing on doctrine, on the gospel, to exhort believers to live godly lives. So that, in a nutshell, is Ephesus, or Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus. Uh, after the greeting then, as I've already mentioned, Paul jumps into this extended expression of praise to God. What you get in verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek is one long, intricate sentence, the longest of its kind in the New Testament, 202 words, one massive sentence, praising God. It begins with a word of praise, and then the rest of the verses simply unpack all of the reasons that we as God's redeemed have to adore God. It's a wonderful sentence, gloriously involved. Uh, as we unpack it this morning, I want us to consider three things. First, we ought to praise God for his blessings. We ought to praise God for his blessings. Second, we ought to praise God for choosing us to be holy. For choosing us to be holy. And third, we ought to praise God for predestining us to be his children. For predestining us to be his children. Verse 3 begins, as I say, with a word of praise. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed means praised. God is praised by those whom he has blessed, and he is praiseworthy. He is worthy of being adored. And in saying that, Paul is himself praising God. Why? Because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has richly poured out his blessings upon us. He describes these blessings as spiritual blessings. Spiritual here means connected or related to the Holy Spirit. These blessings that Paul describes are given to us through God, the Holy Spirit. And these blessings are in the heavenly places. What does he mean by that? Well, the reason God's blessings are in the heavenly places is because Christ is in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 20 talks about how God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There's this uh, consistent theme in the New Testament that having died for our sins, Jesus then rose again triumphantly from the grave, and with his resurrection, he inaugurates a new order of things. He brings into existence, as it were, the world to come. That future world, when everything's going to be perfect, has, in a sense, already dawned with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we who believe in Jesus, even though we are not yet experiencing all the blessings of that future world, which will come when Jesus returns, nevertheless, we all are already, even now, experiencing the life-renewing blessings of that future world in the present. Uh, the blessings of the world to come are already being poured out on the church. There is supernatural power that God is pouring out upon us through Jesus. The Christian life, we can infer, is not lived in our own strength, the power of the flesh, human strength. The Christian life is lived in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Already through Jesus, the powers of the age to come have, in a sense, come. That's what Paul is getting at here. One way I like to think about it is, you know when you go to the ocean, even before you see the ocean, you can smell the salt in the air and you can feel the cool ocean breeze on your skin. The ocean's there but not there, already but not yet. Uh, it's, kind of a, it's a good analogy for this New Testament vision of God's kingdom being present and future. We all are already experiencing some of the blessings of that kingdom and we will then one day experience them fully. But already, for those who are in Jesus, we are tasting the powers of the world to come. Every spiritual blessing has been poured out upon us in Jesus. And for Paul, that's a reason to give praise and thanks to God. Now, his uh, praise here is very helpful because it corrects, corrects wrong thinking in two directions. Now, there are some of you here who are truth people. You are passionate about Scripture, knowing Scripture, knowing doctrine, and you should be. But there is a grave danger if your study, study of Scripture and study of doctrine, never leads you to praise and adoration. Notice that for Paul, knowing the truth about Jesus and what God has done in Jesus is not simply for the sake of knowing, knowing for the sake of knowing. The reason these things are important is that we might then know God more deeply and adore him. If your study never leads you to sing, 
If your study never leads you to praise God, there's something deeply wrong with your study. We seek knowledge of God. We seek to have right thinking about Jesus that we might adore, that we might praise, that we might obey God. In your pursuit of truth, are you also worshiping? Is your study infused with the adoration of God? Paul corrects us here by showing us that truth is for worship, for adoration of the true God. Is that true of you? Or do you just pursue the right answers for the sake of knowing the right answers? A second way in which this opening corrects us is it shows us that we should not seek spiritual experience untethered from truth. This is another way we can go wrong. There are people who want to have a worship experience. They want to feel and experience God. It's a good thing. We should want to encounter God. But notice that Paul explodes in praise precisely because he's reflecting on the truth of who Jesus is, who God is, and what he has done through Jesus. Truth fuels his praise and adoration. Worship and praise from the heart is always fueled by, nourished by, a knowledge of the truth and tethered to the truth. So we should never just simply pursue worship experience as such, an emotional experience disconnected from the truth. Instead, we should gaze at Jesus until our hearts catch fire and we respond with praise and adoration. Which camp are you likely to be in? The truth camp, the experience camp? Either way, this passage says something to you. Truth should lead to adoration, and adoration without truth is impossible. Paul also shows us how we can go deeper in our praise of God. Our praise becomes more fervent as we simply look at Jesus, as we look at the multifaceted goodness of God revealed in his Son, and we gaze at it, our hearts become fuller and fuller, and the response is praise. Psalm 1 teaches us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Scripture is supremely about Jesus. Meditate on him, and as you do that, you'll be able to praise God more and more. So we praise God for every spiritual blessing that he has given to us in Jesus. Second, we praise God because he has chosen us to be his people. The idea of God electing a people for himself goes back to the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament idea. It has roots in the Old Testament. So for example, in um, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, we are told, this is concerning Israel, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was, not because of, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God says to his people, I, I didn't choose you because you were an impressive people, a numerous people. In fact, you were quite small. Deuteronomy then says, I didn't choose you because you were righteous people. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I loved you and I loved you because I loved you. In other words, it's out of the sheer goodness of God that he sets his love on his people and draws them to himself. So that concept of God's electing a people for himself has roots in the Old Testament and is here applied by Paul 
to new covenant believers. And notice that he chose us in him, that is, in Christ. He chose us in him. The idea is that God's choice of us to be his people is not made independent of Jesus. It is made through Jesus. God can't choose us to be a people for himself without Jesus also redeeming us from the defilement and guilt of sin. In choosing us to be a people, God the Father also determined that God the Son would give his life as a ransom that we might be cleansed of our sins and that we might be presented spotless and holy before the Father. God's choice of us takes the work of Christ into account and it is in light of that work and indeed through that work that his election is realized and we become his people. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's election of his people goes back to a time before there was anything, before there was creation when there was only God. To say that he elected us before the foundation of the world is to say that God's choice of us is an eternal choice. There was never a time when God didn't set his love on you. Go back as far as you like, beyond the dawn of creation into eternity past, and there you find a God who has set his love on his people from the very beginning. There was never a time when God's choice of us didn't exist, didn't somehow pop into God's mind later, and he's like, I'll, I'll choose these people. God has eternally chosen a people for himself. And that phrase before the foundation of the world also captures the idea that this choice was not grounded in anything that we've done, any good that we've done. It is a choice that God made in eternity past according to his good pleasure, because he's that kind of God, not because there is any good in us that allows us to claim God's mercies. We see the unconditionality of God's election in the, um, in the purpose for which he chose us. So why did he choose us? Look at verse 4 carefully. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what's the purpose of his choosing? So we would be holy and blameless. What does that imply? That we weren't holy and blameless when he chose us. The reason he chose us was not that we were holy and blameless. He chose us that we might become holy and blameless with the implication that when we were chosen, we were not holy and not blameless, but sinful. What this again underscores is the fact that God chose us not at all because of any foreseen good in us, but entirely because of his gracious and undeserved will. This underscores the fact that our salvation is a free gift from beginning to end. We are saved because God has saved us. We are saved because through his initiative, we are among his people. The ultimate answer to the question, why am I saved? is God in eternity past set his love on me and determined that it should be so. Our salvation has its origin and starting point in the undeserved goodness and grace of God. We see an echo of this truth, perhaps, in the reality of adoption. Indeed, Paul will go on to talk about adoption in verse 5. In adoption, the child who was adopted has no claim on the love of the parents who adopt him. Uh, but the parents on their own initiative set their love on that child, bring that child into their life, lavish all of the love that they have on the child, and they say, what belongs to us belongs to you. 
Through adoption, that child comes to have a new status and a new family. The initiative is on the side of the parents who adopt the child. And in the same way, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God loved us because he's that kind of God, and he chose us. Now, I recognize that this teaching on God's election raises all kinds of difficult questions. There are mysteries involved here, and I don't have the answer uh, to many of these questions. Uh, but it's important for us to realize that the, this teaching on election is not the result of man's speculation about God. This is something that God has revealed himself again, uh, about himself again and again in Scripture. And instead of being a hard and severe truth, this truth is meant to just encourage us Look at, look at how this doctrine functions in this passage for Paul. He doesn't engage in all kinds of wild speculation about what it means and what it doesn't mean. He simply notes the fact that as a free gift, God set his love on his people, and the result is praise and adoration. The doctrine of God's election should be like dew that falls from heaven and softens the ground. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. It's meant to show us just how deep the grace of God, the undeserved goodness of God, goes. It's a call to give thanks and praise, even as often we don't have all the answers to the questions that might arise. Notice then again the purpose, as I already alluded to, the purpose for which God chose us. God determined in love that we should be holy and blameless before him. I take this to be a reference to that final day when Jesus returns and we will stand before him as his bride, spotless and holy. The church will be pure. Every one of us will be completely cleansed, not just of guilt before God, but in terms of how, what we actually are in ourselves, we will be completely without sin. A day is coming when the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ will reach its completion. Because of our rebellion against God, because of sin, we have, in a sense, become disfigured, misshapen. We are not what we were created to be. We are bent when God created us to be straight. But Paul is saying here that God has resolved in eternity past to straighten what is bent, to make beautiful what is now not beautiful. Apologize for the analogy. I've been thinking about Lord of the Rings uh, recently on Amazon. Show's okay. I don't know. It's all right. Um, so uh, apology in advance, but I've been thinking about elves and orcs. And you, you might say, you might say that in a profound sense, we were made to be elves. Regal, wise, strong, courageous, good, creative. That We were made to be that. But in our rebellion against the creator, we have become orcs, if you like. Cruel, driven by our appetites instead of a love for God and others. Deformed, ugly, hideous. But God in Christ is making beautiful what has been marred by sin. And that work of renewing what has been disfigured by sin begins in this life, doesn't it? As we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we, we can slowly but surely begin to see the general contours of the statue that will one day be perfected. We can't see every detail yet. We don't know what will be. But in this life, as the Spirit transforms us and we begin bit by bit to reflect Jesus, we can start to see what will one day be completed. The amazing thing about this passage is Paul is saying it will be completed. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on that final day when Jesus returns. And we will be perfectly, wonderfully conformed to the image of Jesus. C.S. Lewis captures this well in mere Christianity. Of course. Uh, he, he says, God will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's where we're headed if we're trusting in Jesus. One day the statue will be completed. The work will be done and we will perfectly and in every way reflect the beautiful character of Jesus Christ. That is what we were elected for. God has chosen us unto this great and beautiful destiny. And I think that's a tremendous encouragement to us as we struggle with the reality that we're not there yet, as we see our sins and failures and character defects, uh, so often frustrated by the fact that spiritual change is so slow in coming, aren't we? We pray, Lord, help me not to be irritated, my kids. Help me to be patient. Help me to reflect to them something of your gentleness and goodness. Five minutes later, bam, there it is again. The irritability. Lord, faster, please. Uh, the, the fact is, this, this transformation takes time, and sometimes it can be very discouraging. Oh, what's the point? So I keep lapsing back into it. Well, this passage should encourage you. There, there is a day coming when the work will be done, where there will be no more irritability or lust or pride, or whatever character defect you, whatever other you might, character defect you might struggle with. Day is coming when we will be perfectly transformed and healed. And that should give you hope. That should cause you to press on. That should cause you to confess your sins when you fall short and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my iniquity. Give me the strength to press on. And we should do so again and again in the confidence that one day we will triumph through Jesus and we will be holy and blameless before him. Now, if that's our destiny, if that's where we're going, then that means even in the present, as I've implied already, we need to be striving for holiness in our lives. Uh, how do we do that? Well, I got a bit of good advice from um, a guy named David Murray in his book, Reset. Uh, he pointed out, I thought he was spot on about this, he pointed out that one of the reasons we don't make more progress in our walk with the Lord, one of the reasons we don't make progress in terms of character development is we are not specific in terms of what we are aiming for. Like, what sin are you seeking to put to death? What virtues are you seeking to cultivate? And he makes the case that specificity uh, is a crucial ingredient in making progress. He observes, who do you want to be? What area of your personality or character do you want to develop? Most of us, even pastors, do not have specific aims or purposes for our spiritual growth. We just drift along, half-heartedly trying to try harder, vaguely hoping for some positive changes, but without any particular focus or plan. That means that we rarely make much progress. And even if we do happen to advance in some areas, we don't notice it and take encouragement from it. And then he goes on to give some practical advice. He says, a sample spiritual life purpose statement. Do you have one of those? Spiritual life purpose statement? I don't yet. Maybe we'll write one, I don't know. Uh, but but here's, here's the sample. 
A sample spiritual life purpose statement might be something like this. By God's grace, I will defeat anger and develop patience so I can be more like Christ. Or, by God's grace, I will learn how to pray better. There's another one that we, I think, need uh, help in. The point is, there is some plan, some specific way that, like, Lord, I want to grow in this area. I want to put this sin to death, and I want to specifically grow in patience or my ability to pray or whatever. Is there that kind of specificity and intentionality about your spiritual development? Undoubtedly, there are many things in our lives where where we bring that level of detail and attention uh, to our work or whatever. Are you bringing that kind of intentionality to your walk with the Lord? It's a good reminder. Third reason we should praise God is because he has predestined us to be his children. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, I take the word predestined and the word chose in this passage to be parallel statements. They might be distinctive in other passages, but in this case, I think they're, they're basically overlapping ideas. Uh, in verse 4, we are chosen unto holiness and blamelessness. In verse 5, we are predestined unto sonship. We might become the sons and daughters of God. I, I believe those are overlapping. And by the way, let me, as a parenthesis here, there's a good general interpretive principle it's, it's wise to recognize that language isn't 100% efficient. In other words, don't assume that every word in a certain passage means something completely different from all of the other words. There's often some redundancy uh, in a passage. I think that's the case here. Uh, just a good thing to keep in mind. In any case, God in his goodness, we are told, determined in love to make us his children, to adopt us into his family. And here we get to the very heart of the blessings of the gospel. The highest blessing that God has to give is not the forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as that is. The highest blessing is not that we can stand before our creator and judge and know that we are sinless and spotless, as amazing as that is. I mean, you could spend all of eternity praising God that through his son you have been washed of your guilt and you are now spotless and holy before God the judge. Praise God that that's true, but it gets better. There's more to it than this. And the more to it is the truth of adoption. God didn't just wash away our sins and leave us spotless creatures. God said, I want them to come as close to me as absolutely possible. In Christ, God has thrown open the doors to his house, And he has said, come in. I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be my children, and I want you to relate to me, not simply as creator, not simply as judge, but as father. I want you to know in your bones that I am your father in heaven who loves you. God didn't hold us at arm's length. Okay, you can come this far, but no further. He said, come all the way through Jesus. I'm your father, and I am for you, and I want you to understand that and live that out. The truth of adoption means that we have a claim on God. It's not a claim arising from any goodness in us. It's a claim arising from his willingness to be our father. This adoption into God's family, being his children, means that there's a closeness with God, an intimacy with God that we enjoy. Those of you with uh, smaller children, or maybe you had small children at one point, will know what I'm talking about. usually around 3 or 4 a.m., from time to time, one of the little ones will come into our bedroom, 
and sort of sheepishly sit by the bedside and waiting for mom or dad to wake up. You wake up, blurry-eyed. Uh, What's up? What's going on? I'm scared. I had a bad dream. Now, what you can't do as a parent is go, oh, you'll be right, go. Go back to bed. Uh, what you do, precisely because your life and their life are bound up together and they have a claim on you. Other people can't come into your room at 3 4 a.m. They can. Uh, you say either come in, move to your spouse, right, make room, uh, or you trudge down the hall back to the bedroom and you sit next to them, perhaps fall asleep next to them uh, so they're no longer scared. They have a claim on you. They can come into your room at 3 4 a.m., uh, uh, disrupt your sleep, and you can't shut the door. They're your child. Well, in Jesus, we have a claim on God the Father. He always delights for us to draw near. His heart towards us is the heart of a father, and he loves it when we come near. We should have this like basic confidence that God is for us, that in all of his dealings with us, whether it's sweet or bitter, in all of it, he's working for our good. Do you have this robust, childlike confidence that God is your heavenly father and he loves you? I confess, that's a struggle. So often, um, I'm enveloped in a cloud of guilt. I'm aware of my failings, but I have less of an existential awareness of God's goodness. Maybe you're like me. What Paul is saying to us is that the reality of God's fatherly love for us should be more fundamental than even our awareness of our shortcomings. Yes, we sin and we need God's forgiveness, and that's true, we should be aware of it, but more fundamental than that do you believe that God is a father in heaven who loves you, is for you? Paul tells us that this predestination unto adoption is something God gladly and freely did. Look at that phrase at the end of verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. The word translated purpose could and should be translated good pleasure. God, according to the good pleasure of his will, made us his children. This wasn't like a, a grudging invitation into his home. This was a large-hearted welcome by God the Father into his family. Now, here's the thing. If God wanted us to be his children when we were unlovely, unholy, wretched, far from him, if he wanted us to be his children then, how much more can we be confident that he wants us to be his children now that we have been redeemed by Jesus. Sometimes we think of God that his delight or his desire for us as children fluctuates with our obedience. When our obedience increases, God wants us to be his children more. When, we are, when our obedience declines, he wants us maybe to be his children less. But the point here is God, before there was any good in us, wanted us to be his children. That means that God's love for me as his child doesn't contract or expand on the basis of my obedience. God always perfectly loves me as my father in heaven on my best day and on my worst day. God's love for me as father is not determined by my performance. It is determined by his sheer goodness and grace. Do you believe that? He wants you to come to him in prayer as much on the most miserable and wretched day of your life as on your best day. Because fundamentally, your relationship with him is not defined by how well you're doing, but by his gracious love for you as your father in heaven. Does that reality drive everything? Do you live in the joyful confidence that that's true? And again, I say, 
That's one of the things I wish I understood better. So often we know, we know our failures, we know our weaknesses, but do we know this? That God is Father, loves me all the time, delights to bless me, and in everything he's working for my good. Like what difference would that make in your life if you got that, if the penny were to drop? Well, we'd probably be doing more of what Paul does here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Adoration would be the persistent theme of our lives. Indeed, we conclude with where we began in verse 6. God has made us sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Why? What's the purpose, verse 6? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Again and again in Scripture, we see God acting that his glory would be revealed. God acts to display himself and that he would be worshipped. Now, we need to recognize this would be inappropriate for people to do because we're not creators. We are creatures, and it would be inappropriate for us to try to get, draw attention to ourselves. Uh, but for God, that is infinitely appropriate. There's nothing higher or better than God. The highest gift that God has to give is himself. And he displays his goodness and mercy in Jesus Christ that we might see it, rejoice, and praise him. God doesn't need our praises. God is perfectly satisfied and content in himself, though he does delight in our praise. There's a sense in which we need to praise him. That's what we were made for. Praise and adoration are not peripheral to the Christian life. They are central. When, as the Apostle Paul does here, we see the goodness and mercy of God revealed in Jesus. We see that he has chosen us according to his goodness, not our merits. When we see that he has become our father through Jesus Christ, that our sins are pardoned. When we gaze at that, we see that, our hearts should be set on fire, and we should persistently praise God. Adoration should be the continuous, joyful noise that characterizes the Christian life. Does it yours? Paul here calls us to something higher and better than perhaps we're currently experiencing. He calls us to taste the goodness of our Lord and be glad in Him. This morning we are reminded that we as God's redeemed have every reason to praise our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that these truths about the fatherhood of God would shine more brightly in our hearts. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would know in our bones that you are our Father and you are for us, and because you are for us, all will be well. Grant us to walk in the joy of that truth. Apply these truths to our heart through your Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen.